the 11th chapter of Matthew. Uh, I would like to have run a marathon. <laughs> I don't want to run a marathon. I would like to have run a marathon. Not a gifted runner. Uh, I know some people that are gifted runners and uh, who run marathons or have run marathons, but I'm not in that, in that group. I asked a teacher one time, he's writing a book, I said, do you enjoy the process of writing, the, the research and sitting down at your computer and writing it out and, and all that? He said, well, I'm like a lot of, a lot of people who kind of take this on. I would like to have written, and that's a good way to say it, I would like to have run a marathon. Now, <clears throat> I could, I could uh, d determine that I was going to do it. I could go get me some some good running shoes, and I could uh, subscribe to Runner's World, and, and I could, could read about running marathons and different strategies that you might uh, employ to, to run successfully, and how to get a good time and all of that. But unless I actually do it, none of that really matters that much, does it? Doesn't matter what kind of running shoes I have if I don't actually run the marathon. And it doesn't matter if I subscribe to Runner's World or not. Unless I actually do it, it really, it really doesn't matter very much. We've been talking about learning to pray from the example of Christ. Uh, learn, learning to pray from what, what He did when He prayed. Uh, learning to pray from what He taught about prayer. We've noted as we've uh, gone through this that Jesus had an especially close relationship, kind of a unique relationship with God the Father. Uh, Matthew chapter 11 tells us in verse 27 that no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son. And so they have this unique relationship between them. No one knows the Father the way the Son knows Him. No one knows the Son the way the Father knows Him. And Jesus was deity Himself, like the Father is deity. Well, it seems like we read John chapter 1 not too long ago. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so He is deity the way the Father is. He knows the Father. The Father knows Him. The Son makes this statement, makes the observation that He is in the Father, and the Father is in Him. And yet the Son uh, is motivated to pray, feels the need to pray, and uh, exercises that, you know, puts that into practice on a regular basis. So we're talking about learning to pray from the example of Jesus. And here are some things that we've observed uh, throughout the course of this study. We saw that though Jesus would have prayed in the company of others, for example, when He went to the synagogue, He, much, he spent much time in prayer alone. Jesus prayed often and regularly, prayed multiple times each day. We find Him praying in the morning and in the evening, and perhaps at other times as well. Jesus prayed for His needs, but was also mindful of others. And so He does both of those. He prays for his own needs. For example, let this cup pass from me. But he does also find him praying for Peter as well. And so both of those are, are acceptable. Pray for our own needs and for the needs of others. And Jesus prayed fervently. The best example of that, I suppose, is his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And then our prayers, Jesus taught, are to be offered in Jesus' name. So these are, these are good uh, principles to learn about prayer, to learn from the practice of Jesus. But they don't help us very much if we don't pray. We, we can learn all of this. You can even memorize these things, I suppose. But if you don't put them into practice, doesn't help us very much at all, does it? We've got, we've got to, to actually do the praying. We learn some things from the parables of Jesus as well. Uh, we learn to be persistent in prayer uh, from Luke chapter 18 and the parable of the persistent widow who went to the unjust judge, unrighteous judge on multiple occasions in order to persuade him to do justice for her. But she did it persistently. And so we learn to pray persistently. And we made the observation that if we don't care enough about something to ask for it more than once, we must not care very much for it. And so be persistent in prayer. God answers the prayers of His children willingly. Remember we told the, or we read the story that Jesus told about the man who, who, uh, whose neighbor came to him at midnight wanting something. This man had an unexpected visitor come. He didn't have anything in the house to, to give him. And, and the man said, you know, I'm already in the bed. My children are, are asleep and, you know, it's just not convenient. But that's unlike uh, God in answering our prayers, that our prayers never inconvenience God, that He is willing and anxious to fulfill our prayers, to answer our prayers. And then we learn that the humble, sincere prayer, uh, simple prayer of the humble and sincere man is eloquent and powerful. Luke chapter 18 in the parable of the publican and the Pharisee who went down to the temple to pray. Well, tonight we want to turn to the actual prayers of Jesus. Now, we looked at His practice in some of these things. We looked at what He taught, especially in the parables. But we want to now turn to the actual prayers of Jesus. There are several in the New Testament. Most of them are rather short. They're rather brief. John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42, Jesus prays at the tomb of Lazarus. In John 12, in verse 28, Jesus looks ahead to His crucifixion. In John 17, verses 1 through 26, the most lengthy of these prayers, uh, Jesus prays as He leaves the upper room. Matthew 26, 36 through 46, in the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, Jesus prays in Gethsemane. There are other uh, brief uh, times of communication between the Son, Jesus, and the Father, God. Some of those take place on the cross, and maybe we'll refer to those as we go through looking at each of these. The first one we'll look at is a prayer of praise taken from Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25. Matthew 11, verse 25. Now, first of all, we want to establish the setting a little bit, going back to the earlier part of the chapter. In the first part of the chapter, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he was the Christ. Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus gives his answer to them. Go and tell John what you see. You know, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, and, and so forth. And then he turns and he criticizes this generation who rejected both John and him. And so he, he criticizes them for rejecting John and rejecting him as well. 
And so verse 7 says, As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Lord, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and a one who is uh, more than a prophet. And so he's criticizing them for their rejection of John. What did you expect to find when you went out to see John? And uh, he exceeds their expectations if they were looking at John in the right way. In verse 16, he says, To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. You know, there's no way to please you. Uh, we, uh, uh, you know, like, you're like children in the marketplace. And we, we played music for you, and you didn't dance, and so we tried the opposite tag, and we sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. There's just no pleasing you. And so he criticizes them for their, their lack of faith. The minds of some are made up, and they look for reasons to disbelieve rather than to believe. And that's what these people were as they encountered Jesus. They're looking for reasons not to believe rather than reasons to believe. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe unto you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And so here, here are cities, here are people that just refuse to consider who Christ is. They saw the works, they experienced Jesus, encountered Jesus, but they were not willing to believe, and so Jesus criticizes them. And so it's against this background of rejection that Jesus offers this prayer in verse 25. He says, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. And so we've seen that as we've kind of uh, gone back and reviewed uh, the passages leading up to this. Those who have rejected Jesus, I, I praise you that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son reveals Him. And so that's where we're going to, to stop. So let's draw out just two or three points from this very brief prayer of Jesus. You'll notice, first of all, that Jesus addresses God as Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now, that's the consistent practice of Jesus. Look at John, the 11th chapter. We noted this is another very brief prayer of Jesus, but in, on this occasion, He addresses God as Father. So they removed the stone from Lazarus' tomb, and Jesus, said, Jesus raised His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. Now, that's the common practice of Jesus to address God in prayer as Father. You see it again in John 12, 28, John 17 and verse 1. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He addresses God as Father. Even on the cross, He says, Father, forgive them, for you know not what they know not what they do. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There is one exception to this. 
Uh, when Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All, all the other prayers, Jesus addresses God as Father. Now, the common language in Jesus' day in Palestine was Aramaic. And, and so Aramaic is a language that developed originally in, in Aram, or what we would call Syria. And then it spread out of that area and went down into Palestine, other regions in the ancient Near East, so that it became the language commonly spoken even among Jews in, in Palestine. Uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic. And uh, we see it, for example, in, in Mark when he addresses God as Abba. Abba, Father, Abba, Father. John, uh, uh, Mark chapter 14 and verse 36. It's, it's an Aramaic word, Abba, which means, which means Father. And so when Jesus prayed Father, it's most likely that He used the word Abba. The word Abba was a, a word used by Jewish children to refer to and to address their Father. And so it's a word used by children to address Father. But it was also used by older children as well to refer to or to address their father. Just an ordinary daily address, but it wasn't a childish uh, a word. It wasn't a childish address. It was used by small children and by older children as well. And so it was familiar without being unduly or inordinately casual. And so it's not like Pops. Hey, Pops. <laughs> or hey, Pop. Abba is not like that. Or hey, Dad. It's not that casual. It's not that informal. And so it's familiar without crossing the line over into extraordinarily casual. It was not ordinarily used to address God by Jews in prayer, though they did consider God to be their Father. Uh, for example, if you go back to, well, there are several passages in the Old Testament to this effect. Psalm 89, the 89th Psalm in verse 26, you find them referring to God as Father. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And so the Jews did look to God as their Father. He provided for them as a Father. He protected them as a Father. But they did not ordinarily address God as Abba or as Father. They may have prayed, Our Father, though I tried to go back and look at the Psalms. I don't believe any Psalm begins with Our Father. They, they just address God that way in prayer. Oh Lord, perhaps, my God, perhaps. But Our Father was, was not typical at least. And so to address God simply as Father was unprecedented. You know, for, for God, for Christ to teach His disciples to pray, our Father was unusual, and to visibly address Him as Father was, again, just something that wasn't done. And you remember the Jews took offense to this. John chapter 5, for example, when Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. They took up stones to stone Him because He was calling upon God as His own Father. And so when Jesus prays and begins His prayer with this address, Father, I praise you, He's doing something new. He's highlighting the relationship that he has with God. He's speaking to God as a child would speak to his father. Again, not in a super casual way, 
but in a familiar way, as a child would address his father. He's emphasizing the personal relationship that he has with God. And he teaches us to pray and address God as our Father. And so, he's highlighting this relationship, but also the childlike trust and love that a child has for his father. Father also acknowledges authority as well. And so when we address God as Father, we address our male parent as Father, there's a, there's a note or a tone or an, uh, just a recognition of His authority. Remember in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 9, Jesus forbids His disciples, He forbids them to call other men Father. You remember that? Matthew 23 verse 9, Do not call anyone on earth your Father in a religious way, for one is your Father who is in heaven. And so, Father denotes authority as well as a relationship and, and trust and confidence and this love that we have uh, among our family members. You might also note that early disciples, early Christians also called on God and addressed Him as Abba, as Father. Romans 8 verse 15. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we, out, by which we cry out, Abba, that is to say, Father. Abba, Father. And so early disciples, early Christians, were using this address as well, calling upon God as, as their Father. So we learn from the prayers of Jesus to approach God as a child would approach a loving father with respect, but not terror. Now, unless we are being rebellious. Now, if we're being rebellious, we have every re reason to be terrified. But if we're doing the will of the father, if we're walking in the will of the father, we can come before him as a child comes before a loving father with confidence and without terror. We can come before Him with familiarity, but not overly casually as well. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, we find uh, that writer telling us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I've often been impressed with that combination, the throne of grace. It's, it's a throne, it's high and lofty, but it's a throne of grace which extends down to us and invites us to come before it and come before it with confidence. Some versions say boldness. And so what do we learn about prayer from the prayers of Jesus? We learn that we are in a, well, a, a wonderful relationship with God. He is our loving Father. And we can come before Him as a child who loves Him, He loves us. Uh, we depend on Him, we turn to Him to supply our needs. As a loving Father, He wants to supply our needs and make sure that we have the things we need, both in the physical realm and spiritual realm. And so we learn to address God as Father. I think that's a good practice. I, I'm not saying that's the only uh, proper way or appropriate way or scriptural way to address God in prayer, but certainly is a, a scriptural way, isn't it, to begin our prayers, our Father or Father. We also learn to praise God in prayer. That's, this is a prayer of praise, isn't it? At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth. And so this is a prayer of praise. We usually think of, uh, maybe, maybe so, you know, th- th- we often think of prayer as uh, what we, uh, how we make our requests known to God. We're asking Him for things, or maybe even thanking Him for, for things. But we need to praise God in our prayers as well. Here Jesus acknowledges that God is Lord of heaven and earth. Now that's a way of saying everything. He's, he's Lord of heaven, He's Lord of earth, He's Lord of everything in between heaven and earth. He's the Lord of everything. Acts 17, verse 24, He's the Lord of all. And so Jesus is acknowledging that the Lord reigns over all things, all people, all events in heaven, all events on earth, even those things that are under the earth. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10 suggests, However, to say God rules over all things or is in control of all things, we need not go so far as to think that He controls all things. Now, to say God is in control is one thing, that doesn't suggest that God controls everything. And we have free will to make our own decisions. We can choose to follow Him or choose to reject Him. But God is in control of what, of what happens. He is Lord of heaven and earth. There are other prayers in the Bible that do this as well. I want to look at some of these. Look at uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. This is the prayer of David. I think we've uh, alluded to this prayer before. But look at how he begins his prayer with this statement of Praise. Verse 10, David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Notice how he just, that's the first thing out of his mouth when he begins to pray. He's praising God for these attributes, these qualities, the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. And Jesus does something similar as he praises God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Go back to, uh, or go a little bit further in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is the prayer of Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, you are, uh, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. And so he begins in the same way. You're, you're the Lord, you're the God of our fathers, you're God in the heavens, you're ruler over the kingdoms and the nations, power and might. And so he just begins by extolling God and these attributes that God possesses. At times, look at Isaiah chapter 37. At times we find someone praying in the New Testament, in this case Hezekiah, and he's noting these attributes of God, His majesty and power and so forth. And yet, he's tying these particular qualities to the thing that he's going to ask for. And so notice that, Isaiah 37. Hezekiah, verse 15 says, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, You've made heaven and earth, 
And he goes on to say in verse 18, The kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and the lands, have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they've destroyed them. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from His hand. You're the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. Now here's a kingdom, they're pressing down on us, and they, they've been just sweeping their way through nations and destroying their gods. And since you're the God of all the kingdoms of the earth, I'm asking you to do something about our kingdom and their kingdom. And so you can see how he's tying his request into the attribute that he praises God for. That's a good practice. (laughs) We can begin our prayers extolling God and His greatness and power and majesty and all those things. But let's especially praise His attributes that relate to the thing that we need to ask Him for. How do we do that? Well, if you're praying for someone who is sick, you might acknowledge the healing power of God as manifested in His miracles of healing. I'm praying for this person who is sick. You have healed the sick before. You healed Peter's mother-in-law of her fever. You healed the lepers of their leprosy. You have power over sickness, over disease, over injury. I'm asking you to exert that power in this case as well. If you're praying for some financial uh, help or uh, consideration, you might note his provisions for his people. Father, I'm in trouble. I'm in financial trouble. I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. I'm asking for your help. I'm asking for your provision. You've provided for your people in the past. you provided manna for them and quail for them and water for them out of the rock. You provided the widow of Zarephath with food. You fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves and fish. You have the power over all of these things. I'm asking you for your help in my financial distress. And so we're praising God for His power, but we're linking that to the things that we want to ask for. If you're praying for wisdom, which we all ought to be doing, (laughs) we acknowledge, for example, God's gift to Solomon. You've given King Solomon extraordinary wisdom. I'm asking for wisdom as I'm facing this particular trial. And so we're not trying to manipulate God into doing what we want Him to do. We're simply acknowledging His power to do exactly what we ask from Him. You've acted in these ways in the past. I'm one of your children. I'm asking you to act in this way on my behalf as well. So I think that's a good practice. We learned that from from the example of Jesus and others who we find praying in the New Testament. The specific attribute that Jesus praises God for on this occasion is His wisdom. I I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. And so Christ is praising His Father for His wisdom. God has hidden His will from the wise and intelligent. He's revealed it to the humble, the, the, the infants. As Jesus went from place to place preaching and doing miracles, the wise and intelligent rejected Him, the scribes, The rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they rejected Him. Those who thought they knew better how to serve God and please Him than Christ knew. Well, God hid His his will and His message from them. And He revealed it to those who were humble and willing to receive and willing to accept the truth as Jesus taught it. 
We saw in the previous passages leading up to this passage in Matthew chapter 11 that there were some who could not be pleased. There were some who would not repent. Later on in Jesus' ministry, he finds some who just uh, question him, one question after another, trying to trap him in his words in some way. So those are indicative of people that were proud and impressed with their own intellect. So the true identity of Christ, his mission, his teaching, were hidden so that they would not see it. We talked about the parables this morning, kind of like the parables, isn't it? And so why did Jesus speak in parables? Because he's hiding from those who don't want to know. He's hiding the mystery of the kingdom. But for those who have the, the will to learn, those who will humble themselves as children, well, they, they're able to see the truth of God as he speaks to them in parables. And so it's the humble, those who open their minds to Christ, those who become like little children in their open-mindedness and acceptance will see the truth he embodies and teaches. And so we must turn and become like little children. Matthew 18, verse 3. It's the Word of God who makes wise the simple. Uh, the 19th Psalm and verse 17. Frequently the wise of this world cannot see what the babes of this world can see. And that's typical of the way God works, isn't it? And so it's the humble, it's the infants, it's the lowly who are open to receiving God's message. God works through them. It's the wise, it's the intelligent, it's the proud who can't see the simplicity of God's message. God often works the reverse of the way human beings work. And He doesn't work through what's considered important and impressive in the world. Rather, He chooses what's weak and foolish. And He does that for a reason. So He doesn't work through what men consider to be impressive. He works through what men consider to be foolish. There's a reason for that. It's not because the message itself is somehow deficient or inferior. No, the message itself is great wisdom. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world, Paul writes, to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen, the things that are not, so that, there's the purpose, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And so He's chosen the foolish and the humble, what this world is unimpressed with, to put to shame the wise, so that no man may boast before God. Look at chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians verse 1. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Why does God choose the foolish? Why does He choose the weak? Why does He choose what is rejected? So that our faith might rest not in the things of this world, but in the power of God. And so Jesus thanks the Father, Matthew chapter 11, that He's hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Those who have an inflated sense of ego, those who are very proud, those who are very haughty, those who are very high-minded, you've concealed these things from them and you've revealed them 
to the humble, the lowly, the infants. And so Jesus praises God for His wisdom. Our prayer should be prayers of praise. And so in this passage, Jesus praises the Father for His great wisdom. And we may praise Him for that attribute as well, wisdom, but for all of His wonderful attributes, His power, His majesty, His glory, His patience, His long-suffering, and perhaps at the top of the list, His love. So what do we learn from Jesus about praying? In this lesson, we learn that we can call upon God as a child would speak to a loving father. Respectfully, of course, but with familiarity and confidence as well. We learn to praise God for the great attributes He possesses. We praise God for being God. And we learn that when we make requests of God, we highlight those attributes of His that correspond to our request as well. We talked about that some. And so we learn how to pray, how to pray better perhaps, from, from this passage. But as we said in the beginning, it doesn't help us very much if we don't actually do the praying. <laughs> you know? And so if we're not doing that, well then we need to start. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we can come to you as our Father, that you love us, that you want to be our Father, that you'll accept us as your children, that you'll hear us when we pray, that you are interested in what we need and our concerns are a concern to you as well. Our Father, we're thankful that you hear us and that you'll respond to us. We trust you, Father, that you will respond to us in the best way for us as a loving Father. And so, Father, when we come before you and we make our request, then in all things we pray most of all that your will be done and that you respond to us in the best possible way. We're thankful, God, for your power, for your dominion, uh, for your majesty, for your splendor. We're thankful for your wisdom. We praise you for your long-suffering and for your patience. We praise you, Father, for your love as well. It's your love that motivated you to send your Son into the world to die for us. We're so thankful, Father, for that, and we praise your name for all of these things. Help us, Father, to pray more regularly, to pray more intensely, uh, to, pray, to, pray, to pray better, to improve our prayer habits so that they might be the most effective. Uh, and uh, Father, we're thankful that you will respond and hear. But again, all things we pray are to be done according to your will. Father, we ask you most of all to be patient with us and long-suffering toward us as we go through this life. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to see areas where we need to improve and improve. Help us to eliminate those things that are hindering us and develop those things that strengthen us. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen.